Hello there, I'm Toby Haydoke, and friendship grows in time. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about making the monsters go away. Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time, or you know your alien from your Eprin, then you're extremely welcome on this odyssey behind the scenes which aims to go through the series one episode at a time. In this edition, it's an episode in which the Daleks confirm their status as the most perfect embodiment for evil in the show's history, and the Doctor's actions come back to haunt him. So join me, Toby Haydoke, as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, The Ambush, or... We're caught in a trap, and we can't walk out. But to be fair, neither can they. First broadcast on the 11th of January, 1964, at 5.15pm. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman. With Alan Wheatley as Temesis, John Lee as Aladdin, and Philip Bond as Ganatus. It was written by Terry Nation, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Christopher Barry. It was watched by 9.9 million people, and the audience appreciation was 63. TARDIS crew make their way from the cell, with Ian inside a Dalek machine. They persuade the lift guard to allow them access, but their ruse is found out and the Daleks give chase, with Ian only narrowly escaping. They spot the Thals entering the city and Ian tries to warn them, but Temesis, the leader, is killed, having made an impassioned speech to the hiding Daleks about both races living together in peace. The travellers learn some more about the Thal's history once they have escaped the city, but their plans to leave are thwarted by an error of their own making. The When September the design department budget allocation for this episode is £500. The special effects budget is £30, and it has been allotted 550 man-hours, 500 more than episode 3, which emphasises the comparative simplicity of the escape, which in all areas of design is a consolidation, compared to the ambush, which is where the action and the story once again pick up in spectacle. That said... This is a reduction from the original plan, in which it was hoped that the ambush would get 800 man-hours and £100 for special effects. The special effects this week are the sliding doors, the oxyacetylene cutting effect, and the lift crash and statue. The set breakdown for this episode reveals that consideration is being given to staging the fight in the reception hall on film, and whether there should be a shot of the walls blistering from the blast gun, also on telecine. It also uses Nation's phrasing describing the doors as formidable, part-sliding iron door. 
The new sets this week are a second corridor with formidable part-sliding iron door, a small room with a narrow lift, note iron, it says, door to be cut through with flame cutter, special effects, and the exit from lift to large room. This latter has the most complex sequences. The lift is flanked on one side by a long window, a control panel and indicators for the lift. The lift is to ascend and descend in vision. The large piece of abstract statuary is also there, as is a view of the city from the window, glass in the window, sliding doors. Note, it says, Dalek machine to be reduced to charred and burning shell by blast gun. Special effects. Note, statue to be pushed down lift shaft. Complicated stuff. The rest of the sets have been used in previous episodes, or are at least composites of scenery from before. The specifics from the design department outline each set. The corridor in the opening scene is planned as a right angle, since two views are required. As for the room and the lift, an impression must be created that a hole is being burned through the metal door. A flame torch will not be used. It's futuristic equivalent. A section must be made to fall out of the door, as if it has been cut. For the inside of the lift, this will have an indicator to show that the lift is rising or falling. For the lift and room, the lift appears to have travelled to the top of the building where there is an identical small room which has one difference in that it has a window in it. A situation must be created where a Dalek machine is destroyed by a ray gun. The top of the lift must be shown as it begins to descend, for one of the actors barely gets out of the lift in time. There is a statue in the windowed room. A situation is required where the statue is pulled over to the lift shaft and thrown down it. In set five, the reception hall, there is a double doorway here and a large acting area. In the middle of the hall, there are bales and bundles, cases and cartons, apparently containing food. Set six is a right-angled flat in which it is hoped to add a blistering effect as if from the ray of a gun striking the wall. Set 7 is a jungle clearing, as per the previous episode. 30th of September. There is a meeting in Verity Lambert's office to discuss the film sequences required for this story, which will be mounted over five days from October the 28th. For the ambush, there will be four sequences. The large-scale model of the lift crash, the Dalek guns firing, the blistering wall effect, and the cutting through of the door, which will involve welding gear sequestered inside the Dalek gun. Barry then sends a memo confirming and summarising this information, which also has a list of effects required for the story, not all of which will necessarily be the responsibility of the, and I quote, visual aids department. Among these requirements is episode 4's sliding door, which, unlike the other needs stipulated above, is not earmarked for pre-filming. 11th of October. Christopher Barry has only two notes, having read the latest draft of the script. He would like to see more of Darren, the female Thal, and suggests bringing her into episode three as well. He thinks the pecking order in Thaldom is unclear, though. Can we settle on the question of who is Thal leader, Varn or Stoll? Varn and Stoll later become Aladdin and Temesis, respectively. He draws David Whittaker's attention to an earlier scene from episode three, which also seems to muddy the same hierarchical waters. 14th of October. 
Barry sends a memo updating everyone on the requirements for the forthcoming film effort for the serial. In this, he clarifies with Head of Visual Effects Jack Kine that the special effects requested of the Dalek gun firing actually means the whole sequence featuring the destruction of the Dalek machine housing Ian in the ambush. This item may be problematic because it requires Dalek machines before their first studio on November the 22nd and Barry is aware that the design may not, therefore, be finalised and the machines ready. He offers creating a mock-up for destruction as an alternative. He also suggests that an additional filming day beyond those scheduled between the 28th of October and the 1st of November be allocated that he or Richard Martin could attend in order to buy them some time. 17th of October. The Thal cast are all in place. The characters of Zor, Jal and Ven are envisaged at this stage for episode 5 onwards, but as we will see, it gets a little more complicated than that. South African Gerald Curtis will play Zor, Oxford graduate Jonathan Crane will play Jal, although he is not available until the 24th of November, and so cannot be liaised with until then, and he won't be available for the first batch of filming. And Marcus Hammond will play Ven. He has only done one TV role before, in an episode of No Cloak, No Dagger, which also featured an actor called Patrick Troughton, who at the moment has absolutely nothing to do with Doctor Who. That episode of No Cloak, No Dagger was directed by Christopher Barry in September. Barry requests that the Thal extras, of whom only Katie Cashfield has been cast at this point, all be tallish and blonde. The speaking Thals will generally wear wigs, though. 28th of October. Filming begins on the serial. It is planned that there are to be four filmed sequences on the ambush, but at this stage the work completed on the episode is just the model shots of the lift moving up and down and the statue being hurled down the shaft. As suggested earlier by Barry, the filming of the complicated scene involving the Daleks burning through the lift door will not be able to be completed until <clears throat> the Dalek props are ready, and as they are not due in studio until November the 22nd, it seems foolhardy to rush them into being for just one short sequence. 1st of November. Verdity Lambert requests 35mm telerecording facilities to be available for the evening recording of this complex episode on December the 6th, as well as between 4.30pm and 5.30pm to pre-record a complicated sequence. Recording onto film is unusual and expensive and generally only sanctioned for episodes that will require lots of edits. Editing film is easier than editing videotape. Although, that said, it sometimes happens if all of the available VT machines are already tied up doing other things at the time. With this episode, though, it seems to be due to the complexity. 13th of November. The scripts for this episode have been revised by today, with an edict being issued that the Thal names have been changed here and are similarly altered in future typings. Gerald Curtis is no longer playing Zor, which is what his character was still called during the filming sessions he took part in last month, but now Elian. Crane has gone from Jarl to Christas, and Hammond's Ven is now Antidus. 19th of November. A memo is issued covering the rejigging of Doctor Who's schedule due to the re-recording of The Dead Planet on the day that this episode, The Ambush, 
is supposed to go before cameras. Acting drama organiser Terence Cook sends a reminder that the complexity of the ambush means that it should be recorded directly onto 35mm film, but notes that there will be the need for a second crew to be made available because the BBC's usual film recording crew are already engaged on an episode of Dr Finlay's casebook. 21st of November. As it becomes clear that the ambush is going into production a week later, which will have a domino effect on the rest of the production, one of the cast is not happy. Jacqueline Hill has confided in script editor David Whittaker that she has a film offer, with work due to begin immediately after her contract on Doctor Who runs out. This extra recording has knocked everything out of sync, and she doesn't want to jeopardise the film for the sake of just one extra week on Doctor Who, which has been caused by a technical error. And the BBC haven't actually issued an extra contract for this additional week's work anyway. Whitaker writes to Donald Wilson, feeling rather stuck in the middle of an awkward situation, because Hill is good friends with Verity Lambert, and he also senses a lessening in confidence from the main cast about the serial, which he feels is generating a laissez-faire attitude amongst them, and he would like to stop this at birth. He asks Wilson to respect his confidence in writing this clandestine missive, and he worries that the performances of the regulars may be compromised due to these pressures and uncertainties. 22nd of November. Extra monies are set aside for the serial's guest actors, who, thanks to the re-recording of The Dead Planet in between production of The Escape and The Ambush, having been booked, now get a week off, paid. The remount of The Dead Planet costs £1,696, but the extra artist fees set the programme back a whopping great £771. Alan Wheatley is the most expensive guest star, receiving £115.10 shillings per episode, with John Lee on £94.10 and Philip Bond on £63. The Thal extras are on 10 guineas each, whilst the Dalek operators are on £29.05 shillings each. This is the second time in as many stories that the guest cast have been booked and paid for, but not used, as the re-recording of An Unearthly Child similarly knocked the schedule back. Peter Hawkins, having enjoyed a hefty fee early on, presumably thanks to some experimental sessions, is now settled at £52.10 per episode, which includes a recording fee. David Graham is on a less hefty £36.15. 26th of November. As suggested by Barry, there is an extra day of filming today, covering the sequence of the Daleks burning through the lift door in The Ambush. The Daleks are now ready, having been used in the recording of The Survivors on the 22nd, and have been sent back to Shawcraft for some tinkering, notably their casters, but are co-opted for today and taken to Ealing, along with Robert Jewell, Kevin Manser and Gerald Taylor on operating duties. One of the Daleks is fitted with a different appendage in order to house the welding gear. Ian's Dalek has a pre-cut section and a dome that has been sliced horizontally, presumably to explode off during the destruction. The pre-cut neck section causes the prop to collapse as it explodes from the attack, 
but the dome does not blow in half, at least not on camera. The sequence is then edited on the 28th and dubbed on the 29th, the day that the escape goes before cameras in studio. 29th of November. Marcus Hammond is called early at 10am to undergo a wig fitting for his role as Antidus. Because this takes place outside of rehearsal, he receives a small extra fee. 2nd of December. Rehearsals are supposed to have started for the ambush, but instead the regulars convene to re-rehearse the dead planet whilst the guests and the Daleks have their week off paid. 3rd of December. The financial ramifications of this serial's disjointed production continue to need sorting out by the BBC. On top of this, the renewal of the series also needs some consideration. Verity Lambert writes to Pauline Mansfield-Clark, who is in charge of bookings. The series has now been confirmed for 26 weeks, with an option for a further 13, and so Lambert asks Mansfield-Clark to straighten out the options on the main cast so that they align with the posited extensions of the series itself. Lambert doesn't think that the fees will need changing, but understands that this may need to be worked out with the actor's agents. However, she asks if the regulars can be issued separate contracts for the remount of the dead planet in order that that anomalous recording does not knock the options that they currently have out of sync with the planned episode structure coming up. Otherwise, everyone will be out of contract with one episode of a story left to go. This, presumably, also addresses Jacqueline Hill's issues and presumably resolves the issue that David Whittaker has written to Donald Wilson about. 5th of December. Ahead of recording The Ambush, Verity Lambert is concerned about the studio space available to them. She writes a memo outlining her worries. About the many difficulties in Studio D. Each episode of this serial, with very few exceptions, is technically complicated. The nature of our work requires numerous sets and the studio is, in most cases, filled to capacity with scenery. We're using cameras which cannot take either wide-angle or zoom lenses and the studio is not equipped to take the heron dolly. Because of the overcrowding, the mole dolly can only be used when there is enough room for it and the pedestal dollies are obviously used whenever possible. As you know, there are only two ring pedestals allocated to Studio D and the other two pedestals are heavy to move and they cannot easily move up and down in vision, thereby imposing further restrictions on both director and cameraman and end product. In view of all these limitations and the fact that we are committed to this studio for the first 26 weeks of the series, I would like to put in a most urgent request that the allocations of ring pedestals for Studio D should be four instead of two. 6th of December. The ambush is supposed to have been recorded today, but instead the cast and crew have that other go at the dead planet. 9th of December. Rehearsals start for the ambush at the drill hall on Uxbridge Road, and Christopher Barry is back at the helm again, having rejoined the team for the remount of the dead planet last week. Elian and Christus are not in the script for this episode, but it seems likely that as the actors are booked for this week anyway, they have been inserted into the episode to make use of them being paid for. So there are actually more Thals, and certainly more who are allowed to say things out loud, than would have been the case had this episode gone ahead as planned. A smart move from Christopher Barry, 
as he is already paying for Gerald Curtis and Jonathan Crane, it is a good use of resources to give them something to do and to put that money on the screen. Even if their presence doesn't hugely impact on the action of the episode, it swells the ranks of the Thals and helps us to get to know them a little more. Christopher Barry receives Tristram Carey's music for episode 4 today and writes to thank the musician for it, even though he's not yet had a chance to listen to it. 13th of December. In a first for the series, the ambush is recorded out of sequence and in two sessions. Although the paperwork isn't explicit, it is not unreasonable to deduce that between 4.30pm and 5.30pm, the complicated lift sequence is nobbled off early, before the continuous recording of the rest of the episode that evening, as usual. As well as being a complex scene, with the tricky inlay shots of the lift moving up and down, it also has to play in the model film sequences and the pre-filming of the Daleks burning through the door. Edits made on videotape cost £60 a throw, which is why editing this episode on film has been deemed easier and more cost-effective. Some of the artists work overtime on this episode. The main cast all get £2 and 2 shillings for their troubles, and the Thal extras £3 and 3 shillings. However, the £29 that Michael Summerton is being paid to be a Dalek is not enough to keep him on board. He has had an offer to play Abanaza in Panto in Tunbridge Wells, and his experiences inside the Dalek shell have not been enough to persuade him to stay. So, whilst his colleagues will remain inside their casting for the rest of the story, and indeed for the next few years, Summerton's brush with TV immortality comes to an end after just three weeks. 11th of January. The ambush is broadcast on BBC television. 9.9 million people, an increase of a million from last week, which had already been a huge jump from the week before. People watch their screens, transfixed, as the Daleks definitely begin to go up in stairs. The what? Terry Nation's storyline for episode 4, The Ambush, which begins at the very bottom of page 14 of his 26-page document, starts identically to the finished episode. It even uses the phrase formidable steel door to the lift, which is echoed in the script's formidable sliding iron door. The reason for Ian being unable to get out of the Dalek is that one of the interior nuts has twisted tight, and the bulkiness of the Dalek suit is given as the reason he cannot join their escape in the lift. The business with Ian trapped and the Daleks cutting through and destroying the Dalek suit, apparently with Chesterton still inside, is all present and correct, even at this stage. The rain, which doesn't make it into the final production, has stopped in the storyline. But other than that, the storyline and the episode are simpatico. When the Thals are warned about the Daleks, the resulting confusion means that the TARDIS crew join them and they all end up by the ship together in the jungle. There is no death of a Thal leader though. We don't have a sense of their individual characters yet. Doctor Who learns that the Thals are dedicated to the end of killing, even if it means their own extinction. Ian tries to fire them with the desire for survival, but they explain that the race memory of such a cataclysmic war has erased all instinct to fight. The Thals tell the travellers to leave. This 
is not their problem. With no choice, the crew decide to go back to the ship, but Doctor Who suddenly remembers the liquid fuse. It was taken from him by the Daleks and is now in the city from which they have just escaped. Note that it is Ian who has this revelation in the finished episode. The closeness of this to what is broadcast is yet another demonstration of why David Whittaker is so enamoured of Terry Nation. He has produced a practical, workable story from the get-go, one which offers no unpleasant surprises when it arrives in script form. And so, to the episode itself. The first thing we see is a reprise from last week, except, oh, hang on, there is more of it. The pan from the departing travellers to the discarded cloak, over which the episode title is played, does not exist in the print for episode 3, and there is also here a little more of the travellers in the corridor. But the reprise is definitely a film recording of that episode's cliffhanger, so whether last week was cut before or after transmission must remain a matter of conjecture until we can get our hands on the print itself and look for splices. As it stands, though, episode 4 currently contains footage shot for episode 3 that isn't currently in episode 3. Hmm. The Dalek prop Ian is inside is different from last week's, which had a magnet in its sucker to hold the tray. This one does not. William Russell is not actually inside the Dalek at the beginning of the episode either. He is in the corner with a microphone to enable his voice to be treated. In the rehearsal script, Ian's opening dialogue from inside the Dalek does not feature. When putting the travellers in the lift, Ian was to say, The girl can't run far inside. But this was changed to, Cannot run far inside, in order to decolloquialise the Dalek speech, even when it's a fake Dalek. In the lift, the Doctor was originally to say, We mustn't hang about here. They may discover we've left the cell without permission. After the Dalek outside the lift's report sets off the alarm, the action was to go straight to the lift. But the arrival of two more Daleks, not in the rehearsal script, is inserted here, alongside the instructions to immobilise the lift shaft. The magnetised floor in the lift was a late addition to the script in order to explain why the travellers can't move Ian's Dalek. The sequence featuring the Doctor, Susan and Barbara escaping in the lift and Ian struggling to get out of the Dalek is actually quite complex. The lift shaft taking the fleeing trio out is achieved by superimposition. The cast are in a different part of the studio and shot by a camera with a tilt lens. The lift shaft is a set with a black cloth onto which their image is superimposed and they seem to move upwards as the camera filming them tilts. This shot is intercut with the telecine featuring the door cutting, Ian in the Dalek and the Daleks gathered by the lift door. There's also a model shot of the lift, model by Shawcraft, and in the interior of the lift there is some moving lighting to give the impression of the lift in transit. Phew, no wonder they wanted to edit this one on film. The extermination of Ian's Dalek is achieved with a lightweight prop top half, with a pre-cut section designed to collapse. The dome is also pre-cut, with the top half intended to blow off, but this doesn't quite work in execution. Look closely though, you'll see the pre-cutting and the slight change in texture. The Dalek's lift floor indicator has an alien numerical system, 
but one with its own kind of logic, as it is a mix of binary and Roman numerals, with, for example, a double O replacing where a V would be in the Roman system for the numbers 4, 5, 6 and 7. Ian was to say, The bad penny always turns up when arriving in the lift, and its sudden descent was to almost catch his feet. The Daleks were to activate a button which said emergency descend in order to achieve this. Instead, the switch is referred to vocally, which doesn't happen in the rehearsal script. Susan and Ian's exchange about whether he's all right is also a late addition to the script, as is Barbara's cry of when looking out of the window. Her line about everything looking different from above originally belonged to Ian. And here we have it. At eight minutes and 46 seconds into the episode, the word exterminated is uttered twice in quick succession. Dalek 2 says, Make no attempt to capture them. They are to be exterminated. You understand? Exterminated? It is a late addition to the script. The rehearsal dialogue uses destroyed both times instead. Now last week, remember, all we got was extermination. But this week, we are closer to the word most associated with the Doctor's arch enemies. We get exterminated. But as for exterminate itself, well, that actually won't be used in the show until Boxing Day 1964 and the final episode of the Dalek Invasion of Earth, Flashpoint. The shot of the regulars banging against the window and calling out silently is not a directorial flourish. It is specified to be like this in the script. The blocking changes the dialogue for the Doctor and Ian when trying to force the door, but a more notable change is another addition regarding magnetism, which is again given as the reason our heroes can't do the thing that they want to do, in this case, open the door to warn the Thals. In his enthusiasm, Doctor Who pushed very hard and almost followed the statue down the shaft, says the script, oddly using the past tense and also describing an action that doesn't ultimately happen, as Hartnell stays with the door while the others push the statuary. When Aladon and Temesis chat, the leader was to say that the Daleks' offer was formal, but instead ultimately says coldly worded. He also talks of fear being ignorance of other minds and customs. In the pan across the Daleks, as they wait to ambush the Thals, the third Dalek along, look, has a dirty eye. This is because that is the one used as Ian's Dalek at the beginning of the episode, which in the narrative has now, of course, been destroyed. It is, however, fresh dirt this week, and, indeed, a different Dalek. Last week, the dirty-eyed Dalek machine was the one with the magnetised sucker, remember, and that one is second along in the pan, with a perfectly clean iris. The back flat of the corridor the regulars run down to warn the Thals is angled downwards, otherwise the silvery sheen would reflect the camera. This also, of course, helps with the expressionist shapes thrown at us by Raymond Cusick's ingenious designs. During the Dalek attack on the Thals, the blistering heat effect on the wall is created by Shawcraft, pre-filmed at Ealing and inlaid onto the final picture. In the rehearsal script, when Ian and Aladdin meet, the Thal is somewhat 
over-perplexed by the Daleks' motives in killing Temesis, whom they have never met, and keeps pressing Ian about this, much to the exasperation of the teacher. I've a feeling you're more interested in the reason behind your friend's death than the death itself. You don't care at all, do you? Not really, says Ian. When Aladon claims indeed that he does care, Ian tells him that the Thals need to get away, arm themselves and work out a plan of attack, much to Aladon's bafflement. And still the Thal badgers Ian about the Daleks' motives, postulating that if the pacifists do something different, they may get a different response. All this is too much for Chesterton, who becomes something of an alpha science teacher, asking what they should do. Talk differently? Walk differently? Change the colour of your hair? The Daleks murdered your friend for the stupidest reason there is. A dislike for the unlike. The teacher then moves away and is, says the script, furious. Go, Ian. Before we alight upon the Doctor with his back to the ship, uh, the only one of the group showing any animation, according to the script, we have a brief addition in the broadcast version when Elian gets a line that isn't in the script when he tells the female friend next to him that the Thals they are waiting for haven't returned yet. Between scripting and rehearsal, there was much more, now unknown, dialogue, about half a page's worth, between the Doctor and Dione, which has been blanked out in the rehearsal script, so we don't know what it was. But this has gone come rehearsal. When Susan and Barbara watch the Doctor enjoying looking at Dione's solar system cards, and Susan comments that the old man is enjoying himself, Barbara was originally to ruefully comment that she wishes she hadn't had her hair cut. Yeah, no, me neither. Ian is still hacked off with Aladdin in the rehearsal script when the Thal says that the children heard something in the forest, and Ian asks what Aladdin's plan is. Get ready to run, is that it? The Thal is, according to the stage directions, puzzled by Ian's coldness. Christus's line about Antidus being wounded is an addition, as we've established Christus wasn't originally supposed to be here, which means that both Christus and Elian have one line each, otherwise their presence in the episode would be muted, and therefore a questionable one. But, as I say, it's fair to assume that they weren't planned to be in this episode, and this is backed up by the character booking sheets, which has them down as debuting in episode 5, the episode due to be recorded this week and for which the actors are being paid, so they are a resource to be used. This will impact expenses down the line, as they will now be due repeat fees for an episode they weren't supposed to be in, but that's a different department and so doesn't affect the budget for the serial and so should be great news for Gerald Curtis and Jonathan Crane, except, as we will discover in later instalments, they have probably never received them. Originally, Susan was to get the required ointment from the ship, but ultimately the Thals have some, which saves the unearthly child a trip to the TARDIS as intended, and also makes the Thals a tad more self-sufficient. The Thal's rhubarbing and repetition is not in the script, nor is the moment when Aladdin explains to Ganatus who Ian is. On paper, Ian is still in a goading mood, interrogating Ganatus as to why he went back for Temesis and how he feels about his death. I know you were sorry, upset, saddened, whatever you like, but weren't you angry? No, you weren't. You'll let anyone tread all over you. All of this is replaced by the sequence in which Barbara orders water for the wounded Thal, Ganatus tells Aladdin he is leader now, and Ian 
in rather a more kindly manner than his rehearsal script counterpart, explains to the Thals that the Daleks obviously think and feel in a different way. So here is where his important line about the Daleks' dislike of the unlike, originally earmarked for the earlier scene, finally comes into play. Everything after Aladdin reassures Dione that Ian simply doesn't understand the Thals is new. Dione asking about Ian wanting the Thals to fight, Aladdin saying that the Thals would run away, Ganatus asserting that they aren't afraid to die, Ian encouraging them to stand up for themselves, Ian and Barbara discussing pacifism. This is all presumably added by David Whittaker in consultation with the actors during rehearsal. At one point in the script, the planet we are on is misspelled Skara, and the Thal star maps have taken in Earth and our solar system. The Doctor intends to use Earth as his fixing point so he can plan his return. He gets a very Doctor moment where he looks away thoughtfully and says, And I will return one day. But the Earth references are taken out and makes the thing seem somehow more distant, further away, less parochial. The Doctor also originally had a line about there being several races on Scaro, which depleted into just two, the Dals and the Thals, of course, but that has been removed come performance time. Barbara's observation about the Thal holding a sword and the Doctor stating that they once were warriors is an addition to the rehearsal script. Instead of the brief moment in which the Thals carry their dead friend off in a funeral cortege, there was meant to be a bit more interaction. As a result, whereas Jonathan Crane and Gerald Curtis, Christus and Elian, have gained a line this week, Marcus Hammond, as Antidus, loses his only one. He was supposed to thank Barbara for being exceptionally gentle, which Dione was to observe is a great compliment. Things then get less friendly, with Ian chiding the Thals about their history cards and Dione calling him a very abrupt and ill-tempered man and telling him that the Thals are proud of their past. Ian says there's no point if they don't have a future, and has a confrontation with Aladon, who is having none of it, telling the teacher that the Thals are against killing and war. We had a war here a long time ago. If you went full circle around Scarrow from this exact spot and back to it, you'd see traces of war. It destroyed Scarrow, and we swore we'd never fight again. Ian ridicules his stance. Seeing as the Daleks don't believe what the Thals do, he says, all of you are a thousand times better than the Daleks, who'll murder you, but it doesn't matter. And with this, he rather angrily tells Doctor Who that they should all leave, and this is where the notion of the fluid link, though it's not called that yet, comes back up, leading to the cliffhanger. So it's a much testier environment in the original writing, with Doctor Who not the only anti-hero. The softening of Chesterton during rehearsals helps because a. William Russell is just too good at likability and heroics and b. we need a white knight to counter the Doctor's shades of grey. The cliffhanger next week is again not quite the same as the one we have here but for different reasons. But let's leave that as a cliffhanger of its own. The Who Michael Summerton. Michael Summerton is the only one of the Dalek operators in this story 
not to return and continue that function in any other Doctor Who adventure. Whilst his colleagues all stayed in their machines pretty much throughout the 1960s, Somerton chose not to clamber back into his shell, and in fact had bowed out of the acting profession by the time the Daleks were invading Earth. In 1964, he joined the Hazel Malone Agency, representing busy actors such as Richard O'Sullivan, Susan George, Diana Dawes and Roy Barraclough, where he ran the casting department specialising in models and teenagers for commercials. In early 1967, he joined John Mahoney's agency. Mahoney was later an agent for the likes of Matthew Waterhouse and Peter Davison, before striking out on his own as an agent six months later. In November 1968, he celebrated a year in the business as a personal manager with the likes of Danny LaRue, Marge Proops and Gretchen Franklin. He wasn't just a personality representative, but also a production company, and his clients included risque dance group Hot Gossip, who appeared on The Kenny Everett Show and had a hit with I Lost My Heart to a Starship Trooper in 1978, their creator and choreographer Arlene Phillips, and the Beverly Sisters. His other clients included a promising child actress called Bonnie Langford. Then there was Leslie Joseph, Sunita, and Crossroads legend Noel Gordon. He was a great friend of hers too, and during the 1980s could often be found talking to the press about the fallout from her sacking from the show and her subsequent ill health. When Gordon died in 1985, she left the majority of her estate to Somerton. It's very nice to be remembered by Noel in this way, he said, but I would of course have preferred to have continued working with Noel. He also had to defend his dance group Hot Gossip from university student protests, which decried the act as sexist and racist and demanded they not perform at the London School of Economics. Somerton strongly refuted any allegations, pointing out Hot Gossip's multiracial lineup. Somerton was born on the 22nd of December 1943 in Rochdale, Greater Manchester, the son of a dairy manager and he trained as an actor at the Birmingham Rep. Prior to the Daleks, he had played the witch in Alan Gale's touring production of Mother Goose, and when he stepped out of his Dalek machine before the story was over, he put on a panto costume once more and was delighting and terrifying the kids as Abanaza in Aladdin at the Tunbridge Wells Opera House come Christmas. Unfortunately, he fell out with Gale, and their animosity persisted for the next 15 years with Gale, who was producer and agent for the show, claiming Somerton had failed to pay agency commission and also owed four shillings and tuppence for theatrical putty for prop noses that, Gale alleged, Somerton kept losing throughout the run of the show. His only television prior to Doctor Who was playing a postboy, Mr Williams, in an episode of the soap Compact in 1962. When cast as a Dalek a year later, he was sent to the BBC and tried the base out for size and was used to test out the Dalek's manoeuvrability. Later, when he tried out the whole costume, as the lid came down and shrouded him in darkness, Somerton later said, I knew that my career as an actor was over. And so it was, and the move into management was perhaps prompted by this, but also by his unhappy dealings with Gale. But whatever the reason, 
he had fantastic success, although one blip was when a young client of Malone's, David Jones, asked Somerton to listen to his music and to give him some guidance. Somerton, not a man especially au fait with modern pop, told Jones to stick to acting. Jones later had to change his name to avoid confusion with Davy Jones from the Monkeys and became well known not for sticking to acting so much as becoming the musical legend David Bowie. Still, specialising in dancers proved to be a canny move and at its height his agency managed 200 dancers and choreographers. He represented both Arlene Phillips and Bruno Tonioli and so when they appeared as judges on Strictly Come Dancing and were commissioned to present Dance X by the BBC, he continued to flourish. He was known to have a wicked sense of humour and was a collector of pictures and antiques with flats in London and Mallorca. He died on June the 16th, 2009, the day before his longtime friend and colleague Arlene Phillips was fired by Strictly Come Dancing amid accusations of ageism. Phillips' upset at losing her job was compounded by the death of her friend and the person who she would have turned to to pick up the pieces. I was so full of grief, she said, and overwhelmed. Somerton had been fighting cancer for some time. He was 65. And so ends another episode of Doctor Who. It's a complex action show this week with some great special effects, especially that lift sequence which has a Dalek welder and so a replacement for the sucker, something that is actually more common in these early days than later. Dalek destruction, a moving lift with our heroes in it, a statue being hurled down a lift shaft and it's all carried off with considerable aplomb. The lift then really gives the story one at this point. After last week's incarceration, now the travellers are on the run and the technical virtuosity of their elevator escape should not be underestimated. Although I won't tell anyone that the reverse on the lift door looks like there are two welders, one on each side, on the go, which isn't the case when we're with the Daleks. Oh, and there's no extermination effect when they destroy Ian's Dalek. There's a lot of smoke though, so it's briefly reminiscent of the effect in the Dalek movies from later. And the Daleks take their first of many on-screen victims, the Thal leader Temesis, and the first Doctor Who guest star, really, Alan Wheatley, definitely the biggest name in the cast, killed off to doubtless shocking effect, even if Wheatley has to deliver his final speech whilst failing to notice the Daleks hiding in plain sight mere steps away from him. But that's the only quibble one can surely have with an episode which the regulars have improved yet again from script to screen, constantly striving as they are to make their characters more likeable and improving their dynamic as they go. And what a choker of a cliffhanger, in a story full of great cliffhangers. This isn't a how-will-they-escape-this moment, nor is it a sudden injection of peril. Instead, it is a sickening realisation that all they have been through is for naught, and that they are the architects of their own jeopardy, and just as they thought they could make their escape, they're going to have to put themselves into the same dangerous situation once more. This is Doctor Who, folks. You cannot run, and you cannot hide from deadly adventures. They're inevitable. And yet, here the adventuring 
is because of a silly thing that the Doctor did in order to facilitate a bit of exploring, of scientific curiosity, which has got that cat. And it means that now they have to go and imperil themselves once again. And that's the reason for the adventure continuing, not because of any strong moral desire to help the Thals and to defeat the Daleks. They aren't those kind of heroes just yet. References. Well, look, I don't come up with all of this on my own. Of course I don't. It's all gleaned from articles and paperwork and interviews. Although that stuff about uh, Elian and Christas being moved into this episode, I've not seen uh, written or discussed or discovered anywhere else. I think uh, came up with that trawling through the archives and uh, reached that conclusion ran it by Bignall, and we agree that this is probably what happened. Bignall is Richard Bignall, of course, and his Nothing at the End of the Lane magazine is an extraordinary piece of archive television scholarship, and it reaches the parts other publications simply haven't managed. Mr Bignall has also supplied various bits of paper that have proved incredibly useful, and has been on call to answer any lingering questions. If I activate the Bignall signal, he usually answers the call most speedily, like a brooding millionaire super-archivist on a quest for truth, justice and historical accuracy. Then there's Doctor Who, The Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth and Mark Wright, who was not mentioned in earlier instalments, for which I can only apologise. So, Mark Wright, Mark Wright, Mark Wright, Mark Wright. Those beautiful-looking and informative, definitive volumes are invaluable for timelines and cross-reference and are the embodiment of fastidious research and consolidated information. Much of the material therein is based on Andrew Pix's rigorously wrought archives features from Doctor Who magazine back in the day, but they also feature the work of Richard Atkinson, Johnny Morris and Alistair McGowan. How Stammers and Walker, with their definitive books on the 60s, 70s and 80s, and each Doctor in their handbooks, deserve much praise for shaping our basic understanding of the developmental story of the entire show behind the scenes, and Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who The Early Years is a vital and valuable record of this period in the show's history, both in words and more glorious pictures. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon Patrick Sullivan's complete history of time travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference, and I also subscribe to the British newspaper archive Ancestry.com and Newspapers.com, which are vital resources, but also places that are very easy to get lost in for several days, so proceed with caution. I would also like to acknowledge the production notes on the BBC DVD of this story, which are by Martin Wiggins. I walk in the shadows of giants, and they're giants that probably bang their head a lot looking through newspaper files and scouring through archives. Oh, and fear breeds hatred and war. Doctor Who, The Ambush, also featured Virginia Wetherill as Dione, Marcus Hammond as Antidus, Jonathan Crane as Christus, Gerald Curtis as Elian, Peter Hawkins and David Graham as the Dalek voices, and Robert Jewell, Kevin Manser, Michael Summerton, and Gerald Taylor as the Daleks. The title music was by Ron Grainer with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, the incidental music by Tristram Carey, the story editor was David Whittaker, the designer Raymond Cusick, and the associate producer was Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next, the Doctor and co have to persuade a hitherto peaceful gang of farmers to take up weapons and to sacrifice their lives 
in order that they, the TARDIS crew, can gain access to the city and retrieve a vital piece of equipment that was misplaced down there thanks to the Doctor's duplicitousness. Hang on. Are we the baddies? Next episode, The Expedition. Or pacifism. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Too Much Information, The Ambush, was written and presented by me, Toby Hayden. Additional voice work was by Chrissy Bone. And thanks go to Richard Bignall, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, John Kelly, Graham Kibble-White and Simon Guerrier. The series consultant is Richard Bignall. And the music has been specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, called Far Too Much Information that is for now exclusive to patrons. There are far too much information episodes on the prehistory of Doctor Who, as well as the pilot, the first episode and the first four versions of An Unearthly Child. There are accompanying show notes and pictures too. There's Alice Frick, Donald Bull, all of the Coal Hill kids. And all of that is on my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke, where you can get exclusive material, early releases and many other bonuses. Oh, and there are pictures of my dog as well. I know. Patrons are also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast. I would like to thank all of the patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Ruben Herfindahl, Richie, Stephen White, Andrew Wilson, Andrew Willis, Michael Williams, Rich Wiggins, Adam Westwood, Gary Wales, Apollo C. Vermouth, David Trainier, Reynard Toombs, Sabrina Tirabassi, Nick Temple, Nick Tedston, Neil Tate, Keith Say, Matt Sawyer, Jim Sangster, John Rivers, Dylan Reese, Jonathan Potter, Keith Perry, Melvin Pena, Dave Owen, Matthew Newton, Nathan Moore, Stuart Mitchell, Ross McPhillips, John McClay, David Matthewman, and Nathan Martin. And if you would like to join that list, you could do so at, as I have mentioned probably too many times, patreon.com forward slash Toby where you can get advanced releases, exclusive material, and all sorts of other goodies. It's a fairly egalitarian system. Most of the bonuses are available at the lowest tier, which is £3 a month. And you could also get on top of that a 10% discount if you sign up for a year. And don't worry, I keep churning it out. Churning makes it sound like I don't put any of it. It's, it's, it's certainly a finessed churn. Um, but look, I know not everybody uh, can commit to a monthly model. So you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock if ever you're feeling uh, flush or if ever I sound particularly wan and hungry and needy. Uh, go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock for a one-off payment of any amount. Uh, either of those things are extremely flabbergastingly uh, hugely appreciated but I understand that in the current financial climate sometimes all you can give me is your love and I will accept that with open arms particularly at iTunes where your love can come in the form of a five star review and a few lines saying nice things what that does is what that little bit of your love does is it uh, 
well, it uh, it tweaks my algorithms and makes them uh, makes them stand out, and then other people will notice them, and they'll want to give them a tweak as well. That's how it works. It almost sounds like prostitution, doesn't it? Um, I've got a nasty suspicion it might be. Anyway, do all of that. Thank you very much. Um, that escalated, didn't it? Now, all new episodes of Dick Dixon in the 21st century. It's a fuzzy, distorted blur, like watching BBC Two on the Isle of Wight. I can barely make out anything through the interference, just vague shapes moving up and down. Lieutenant Fox, can you use the computer to improve the picture quality? Of course, Admiral. It hadn't occurred to me to do that. That's why they made me Admiral. I think outside the box. Applying image enhancement. Warning. The distress signal you are about to see contains images of a graphic nature that some viewers may find disturbing. Oh dear. I hope this isn't another one of those situations where they've started eating each other. Dick Dixon and the Love Bug is available for purchase now at www.averagerobin.com. And I also do a comedy night. I'm a stand-up comedian by day. No, I'm not. I'm a professional anorak by day. I'm a stand-up comedian by night, particularly Tuesday night in Manchester. Excess Malarkey Comedy Club, which has been going for 24 years, so we must be doing something right. We charge as little as possible and bring you the best acts around. Uh, well, those that can get to us. And you might not be able to get to us, but that's right, because we also go online at twitch.tv forward slash excessmalarkey on the first Sunday of every month, and then our reach goes even further, and we have acts from all over the world. Uh, I compare every show, and uh, we have an awful lot of fun, and uh, so if you would like to support either of those things, please do. The uh, online gig is absolutely free, although we do uh, encourage donations, but it's free at the point of contact, uh, and it's a lot of fun. There's a great community of people who uh, just like good quality comedy, uh, but good-natured comedy too. So, uh, yeah, check out those things, and I'm on Twitter at Toby Haydoke. These podcasts are at Haydoke Podcasts, and I also have a website, www.tobyhaydoke.com. Insert amusing post-credits bit here. do actually oh did you hear that stomach rumble there we go bonus stomach rumble for the doughty <laughs>